Welcome back. This episode is about how I personally work with ego, as well as expanding on the concept of our, quote, rules, as well as the base understanding of how we came to live by a bunch of nonsense restrictions, as well as how they can really play into our life experience. We as a conscious being think that we logic our way to who we are today, but when we work with our ego, we often learn that really we do the best to be the version of ourselves that could best protect or comfort our child selves. But when we split our pieces into the protector and what needs to be protected, we hand out soul fragments. And some of our little quantum parts stay behind with those involved in the situation or at the location or a period of time. They can just simply get and properly rearranged in our own bodies, creating energetic blockages or contracts, i.e. limiting beliefs. Often, this is actually a combination of several of these ties. If you never let go of an emotion, your ego holds the false rule it carries, and your ego is stuck from progressing to new thought patterns. So the universe will show you time and time again chances to balance out that part of your ego. And as you merge yourself with your ego, your ego will catch up to you and your reality will really reflect back accordingly. As you begin this work, whether with a therapist, an energy worker, or quote, a class like this, you learn that most of what you previously learned about the world as a child, uh, which would be your ego, probably isn't accurate. And even when our parents were doing their very best, they likely royally messed up our emotional well-being simply by passing on their sort of emotions and opinions, which would be our shadow self, as well as their habits and methods of coping, which is kind of like our inner children. Our parents could only teach from their experience, i.e. their ego. So even when they were doing their best, it's likely that they accidentally limited you on a quantum level in some or all the ways that their parents limited them. I mean, it's only been in the last few years that studies are starting to show how even the little things affect us in pretty big ways. For example, they are starting to find that being yelled at frequently by a parent has similar effects on a child's brain as physical abuse. When I was younger, I figured since everyone got yelled at and everyone had this collective trauma that is public school, that I needed to just get over it. It was ridiculous if I was upset about it and everyone has to deal with this and so I needed to stop turning it into something big, you know? But what I wish I knew then was that those little things, even those collective things, they deserve to be felt just as much as the big stuff. The big personal stuff, you know? In energy work, there is no such thing as no big deal. It was big enough for you to hold on to. It's big enough to earn a bit of your time to feel it. So during your first seven years of life, uh, we set our sense of identity, which is our ego, again, <laughs> which is uh, largely based on how we were treated and how we perceived ourselves because of it. During this time, we are also learning so much about the world. Children are often referred to as tiny sponges because of how much they notably take in. Everything they see, hear, or feel shapes the foundation of who they are, where they will go in life, and how they interact with the world, at least until they decide to be something different. 
So something that is just beginning to be acknowledged is the fact that children aren't actually capable of emotionally regulating themselves. They have no idea how, first off, and second off, their brains aren't even fully functioning enough to try. We don't really understand what emotions are when we are that little, yet we're expected to be able to manage and control them. Most parents expect more emotional maturity from their children than they themselves are even capable of. I mean, take yelling at your children, for example. Um, we yell at them to punish them, but then they yell back at us or at their siblings, and we're just flabbergasted that they would yell. Um, and if we can't control our emotions when we're upset, how can we expect our children to? Again, their brains aren't even fully developed at this point. This will often cause a child to store emotions surrounding the idea that they were just a bad kid, or even their best wasn't good enough. Also, in those seven years of life, we learned a lot from our caretakers. You know, a good amount of starter rules that will set up a foundation of our limiting beliefs, you know, all the good stuff. <laughs> Some things like don't jump on the furniture, eat your vegetables. Uh, don't cry, I'll give you something to cry about. Stop coloring on the walls. Most, if not all, of what a lot of people grow up in terms of communication is, in one form or another, a correction to who they are or how they behave. Whether it's you being taught the steps to try tying your shoes or them commenting they wish you wore the outfit they just bought you, teaching how to save money or what shows to watch, if people only told you how to behave and not how to process your feelings, it only makes sense that sometimes we just kind of explode or implode. A lot of people just shut down. It could really both go both ways, and neither of them are really any better than the other. And it's all really based on what was said and done to and around us when we were little. Our early life was really guided. Even with the most loving and well-intentioned parent, you can still end up being misled because they could only teach you what they themselves understand about the world at the time. This is why if you have siblings much younger, you'll often notice most parents react and treat the younger ones quite differently, and it's because that they have learned more since your childhood. Children will build their entire identity and sense of the world based on the building blocks that they find and were given along their way. Little kids that are praised for their intelligence and love of school can often end up overdoing it and reach burnout by 20. I mean, the parents are literally praising the child. How could that go wrong? As much of a negative experience shapes our um, experience of the world, the good stuff really does as well. It all depends on how the child took it and how important did they assign it in regards to who they are as a person. Most of us were never modeled on a proper way to express and process our emotions, and most of us never learned how to even fully feel our emotions, let alone understand what the emotion is trying to tell us. All we know is it's bad to get angry and yell. It's bad to want to lay in bed all day. And if we feel anything but bliss, there must be something wrong with us. So we grow up hiding our emotions from others, or even ourselves, and we push them out of our minds and into our auras and bodies, affecting our daily interactions and habits, as well as potentially causing diseases. Despite what many of us were taught, no emotions are actually bad to experience, as we 
all learn from the movie Inside Out, even sadness has, um, sorry, even sadness serves an irreplaceable purpose. However, holding on to any emotion for too long can negatively impact our realities in absolutely every way imaginable. Holding on to anger or anxiety can make us irritable and trouble focusing or feeling compassion for others. Sadness can make us feel heavy, tired, and make it so even fun things don't feel fun anymore. Excessive amounts of joy can breed discontentment, boredom, and even apathy. At the very least, they can stop you from seeing danger when it's around. It all comes back to finding balance within. Healing this aspect of your energy won't stop you from feeling your negative emotions, but it will slow down and stop the emotions from taking over your actions and entire sense of self. It gives you a chance to gain clarity on your issues before you do something about it. After a while, you'll start to find where our reactions to these emotions stem from that first decade of our life often with corresponding events in one or more past lives if that is something that you choose to explore. Once we've stored an emotion, we'll often validate that emotion through our perception of our other experiences. Our egos distract and connect with those experiences together to form a sense of expectations from ourselves or the world. Take being picked last for a team in school, for example. One person may store this in their bodies as feelings of not being wanted, whereas another person will store this as not being good enough. Another person may store it as being ignored or picked on. The vibe of how we interpreted the events will be based on the perception we have of ourselves. If we feel worthless, we will interpret this event as us being viewed by others as worthless. Whereas, if a person wasn't already holding on to an emotion that this event attached, touched upon, we would simply accept that the other options had more skills and we would move on without storing this in our energetic files of, quote, proof of who we are and how we're viewed by others. As I said before, it is way less about what happened and more about how you perceived the experience, how you internalized it, how your ego stacks this event up against with previous ones. How we perceive these early life events is so largely influenced by the things that were said to us or around us. If the only time someone says I'm proud of you is in regards to your schoolwork or chores, you might internalize that as a limiting belief that your only value is in your ability to perform well and meet expectations of those in authority. If your ego wasn't stressing about how your value and identity are tied to your ability to perform, you'll just accept the compliment because you know you worked hard and you feel good about your accomplishment. Here is an example of uh, how what others say about a situation can change our perspective of our experience, especially when you're young or at least on autopilot. Imagine your mother did absolutely everything she could for you and showed you all the affection that you would allow her, but she worked a lot and all your tiny child brain could comprehend in the moment was that she wasn't able to be there for you when you cried for her at bedtime. And the crying for your mommy until you passed out was your experience regardless of anybody's intentions or efforts. All you knew was that she wasn't there. And if our emotions were not properly supported, 
by our other caretakers, this emotion might linger and play into our expectations of the world. However, this experience can be drastically shifted based on what other people said around you at the time. One way this could be shif shifted is if your mother worked a lot, but you were watched by your grandma who addressed your emotions and assured you that you were loved and your mom is trying her best, and you might not quite understand when you're really young, but at least eventually you would understand that your mom tried. And maybe you'd store some emotions about how you have to work hard for money or just that adulthood equals hard work, but nothing nothing quite like neglect that can be if it's uh, on the flip scenario. If you grew up with your grandmother often mumbling about how she wished your mom didn't feel the need to work so much, it could leave you feeling like she chose to work this, this much uh, versus her just trying to pay the bills. And this is much more likely to store some drastic emotions and limiting beliefs around your value, vulnerability, and ability to trust others. But in both of these scenarios, it's exactly the same mom with the same work hours and the same goals and the same efforts, but it's all based on how the secondary caretaker can help uh, kind of mitigate those emotions. Depending on how you experienced the event, how you did or didn't cope through it, will alter how you react to similar events in the future. We learn our place in the world, and our ego does what it can to keep us in check for the sake of safety and comfort. Whether our egos guided us to take the advice and guidance, or we rebel like hell, we are shaped into who we are up until about our teen years, and then we get out into the world and either solidify our beliefs or alter them depending on how our early adulthood goes. The ways that uh, these early childhood emotions and expectations can shape our lives are endless. The following above example, if you did store that emotion as a block against emotional vulnerability, you might find in your adult relationship you often feel emotionally abandoned by your partner when you guys fight. Then you take a moment to calm down and breathe, and your partner is just processing their thoughts. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's hard to talk sometimes, apparently. Uh, your partner is just processing their thoughts, uh, but you might be spiraling in the corner about how they never loved you, and you can't rely on them to help you be okay in the end. Or maybe you are fine during arguments, but it took you three years to really believe them when they say that they won't leave you. It could also manifest as jealousy, always worried there is going to be something or someone out there more important than you. Coming back to the fact that we are all just souls in our 3D bodies being guided by how we were spoken to as children, whatever you did in the past, uh, that made you feel shame, remorse, or guilt, it's okay. Just feel those emotions. Process where it comes from and heal it. I do think making physical amends when possible is a great idea, but if it's not possible or you're not ready, it is not necessary for growth. And thus, unless that's part of your soul lesson you're looking at right now. But anyways, whatever you did, whatever happened, it's okay. Until the universe implodes on itself, you have unlimited options. Where are you at? Where are you going? What is stopping you? So if you heal what was done to you, don't forget to heal what you have done. And don't forget to forgive yourself as well, because none of us have been perfect in this journey, and we're all just doing our best.
my point really with all this is that up until the moment you consciously go, huh, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe I don't have to be this person. You are on autopilot living out what your ego believes, whether that is good or bad. And that's the moment when you start to take all the power over your life back. It all starts the moment you begin looking for more. And as we do energy work, we are making space for the body to find balance for itself. Each person is naturally capable of creating that balance themselves. But when we're trying to see through our ego lenses, we can't even tell where balance is. As we find balance in our energies, our thoughts and feelings shift, uh, leading to a more ba balanced mental plane. And this ripples out to be a more physical balance, a more spiritual balance. It's like a never-ending loop as the energy resides in the physical body. You can start on any phase of this loop of healing and close it. All the universe wants you to do is recognize it and make a choice. And if you don't energetically let go of that person, emotion, or event, they will just put it back on your plate for later. And there might be different people involved or it might not even show up in the same aspect of life. But it will loop back around wherever you go until you close the loop by taking back the energy that is yours and giving back the energy you took. And acknowledge, and acknowledge from an energetic level that there is an alternate outcome. And even if you get the same outcome next time, you know how to handle it now. Okay, so... You have your physical body, and you have all the energy inside of it. And around your body, you have several layers of energy, uh, which make up your aura. In some traditions, the layers have particular names, the closest to your body being the mental plane. And I'll get into some of the other layers in my perspective on all of that later, but I bring this up now because this is where I believe that the ego, that I believe the ego is and what the ego is. The energy you hold between you and the world, so everything you experience comes through your ego filters. That is why it is so important to learn how to heal and keep your ego in check. The term ego in of itself is commonly used, though I've learned that everyone uses this term and relates to their own egos quite differently. When I personally am talking about ego, I am referring to the part of your brain that is terrified of falling in love or gets angry when someone cuts you off in traffic or the part of you that holds all of your emotions in or even the part of you that prefers blue over purple or the part of you that thinks it's stupid when people go to the drive-thru and then sit in the parking lot to eat. Your ego is what decides whether that roller coaster was fun or terrifying. And the, thing that, the things that you don't like or try not to acknowledge and everything that you hide becomes your shadow self. And your ego is the part of you that decides what pieces of you are acceptable and which aspects need to be hidden or rejected. It is merely who you think you need to be. Your ego will hide anything about your personality or your past that might make other people judge you or make them uncomfortable, or it makes you uncomfortable and judgy towards yourself. Your ego is the voice in your head that tells you what you or other people should be like, 
what you and other people can or can't do. It's the part of you that has decided who you are and how the world works. And your ego self is the one making sure no one, not even you, opens the closet at the end of the hall to find your shadow self. And when you're not aware of your ego, it runs the majority of your thoughts, emotions, and life all on autopilot as to what it thinks is the best to do. And when left on autopilot, your ego will often store absolutely anything and everything possible to keep you and your heart safe in the form of rules of how you should behave or what you should say, what you can and should expect from the world, where you should go, what you're allowed to do, who you're allowed to be. Without being checked, your ego can take anything that is different from what your rules say as a threat to self. And this is why most people think of ego as the part of you that lashes out or acts entitled. But ego really just encompasses your opinions and beliefs about everything. It's equally likely to make you shut down as lash out. And it's also part the part of you that can handle the situation. Ego in of itself is not a bad thing. What is bad is that we allowed our egos to run our lives up until now. Your ego is made up of your limiting beliefs, and it is also what decides what the limiting beliefs you live by. And so as you can see, a couple of decades of your ego run on autopilot can create quite the mess. Many people work with egos from the perspective of getting rid of it, and from my experience, this can actually be quite the disservice to yourself, to be honest. Your ego may not be you, but it is also not separate from you either. But I think the key difference is in the way that we are using the, the term ego. My definition of it just seems to be a lot, a lot broader than most people's definition. The problem is when you try to get rid of your ego, at least when you're using the term the way that I do, you're furthering the ego's perspective that these things need to be hidden or rejected. Regardless of how weird or cheesy it sounds, you have to learn how to love all of your junk, embrace all of your shadows, and somewhere in your journey, you'll start to see how all your weaknesses were unrecognized strengths. And all of our shadows are a part of the beautiful you. Give it time and you'll see the bigger picture. While we're on the topic of different definitions of egos, I actually want to share my issue with people talking about their ego death experiences, just because I think this can be a huge red flag, and so I just want to share my perspective on this one. Uh, generally, when people talk about an ego death experience, it is a very sudden release of aspects of ego, usually in relating to gaining more compassion for others, which is fabulous. But uh, believing that your ego died can be problematic. I can see how it could feel like a death of the ego, but it's the energy you release likely caused the reconnection of source to some degree, effectively connecting you more to other people, which is why you feel more compassion and sense of oneness. So this is not to say that this is not a spectacular experience. However, if you now believe that your ego is dead, then you are no longer uh, in the belief that your ego can get in the way of your opinion. And this can lead to some really, really toxic behavior.
Although it's impossible to entirely kill off your ego as you cannot kill off parts of yourself, you can learn to identify the way your ego is involved. Merge when needed and flow through it or you can suppress it. Those are the only two ways I've seen anyone deal with ego so far. And even if you're able to set your own stuff aside, you still have a preset subconscious expectation of how an interaction might go or what you have to do in order to heal it or what a particular color of energy represents. Ego is everything in the way you go about healing. The trick is not getting stuck in ego, recognizing when what you are doing isn't working and exploring ways to adjust it. Even if that means entirely reframing your perception about the topic and recognizing that what you believe is wrong for you can actually be right for someone else. You have to be open to change. Flow where your imagination goes, ask why and why and why, <laughs> and you'll eventually find where your ego is stuck. And the ego is uh, typically emotionally a few years if not more behind your current age. When you experience extreme emotions, especially when you're younger, it can halt your ego from maturing. It's like trying to deal with your adult relationship troubles through the lens of a six-year-old scared to be left alone. Your voice and language is adult, but your emotional response and coping strategies might not be. And your ego can have different ages and different aspects of life. Maybe in regards to emotional trust, your ego is 7, but in terms of personal accountability, you're 12. Most of us had to emotionally act way older than we were without the skill or brain development to support it. Matching this with not being properly modeled emotional reactions have left many, many people with trouble either sharing or containing their emotions with others. It can also be a bit difficult at first to distinguish between your true self and your ego, but as you wake up to who you are by releasing these emotions, you can begin to understand the difference between self and ego, and it's something only you can figure out for yourself. Nobody else can really teach you. Something to start noticing in life is how every annoying thing you can think of, every triggering thing, every fear, every hope, disappointment, the fact you're capable of growth or not capable of growth, all of your intrusive thoughts, these are all just sitting in your body, rerouting your life the same as the big stuff. They're just sitting there causing problems and shaping the way that you experience life and how your body runs itself. These stored emotions are anything that you decided or you were told at one point was true about you or the world around you. Even things that were not done to us can still affect us negatively in really, really big ways. Some common phrases that most of us have heard a lot as a child can become uh, ingrained in our understanding of the world and become limiting beliefs. Life is hard. You have to work hard for money. You have to love yourself before others can love you. Good friends are always supportive. Personal example for you Ever since I was in massage school, I wanted to run my own studio, but I kept putting off actually starting my business because I had a belief that it was going to be hard. And you know, most businesses fail in the first year anyways. 
But once I made the leap, it only took me a few months to realize it was easier, more enjoyable, and more profitable to own my own business than to work for other people. I had to completely shift my perspective and relationship with money, work, effort, and self-worth to dare even think about it. And I've had to keep shifting them in order to keep progressing to where I am today. See, if kids grew up with parents who didn't struggle with money, had good jobs, and they grew up anticipating this kind of life, and they are much more likely to naturally gravitate to that frequency. They don't struggle as much because they don't anticipate struggling. Whereas if you grew up below the poverty <laughs> if you grew up below the poverty line, you'll have to fight past all those living beliefs in order to quote move up. Some of the things I hear people say often can be quite hurtful even when the person has the best of intentions. Take the very toxic phrase that you have to love yourself before others will love you. For example, so because you're struggling with insecurity, you're not worthy of love from others? Realistically, that's when we need it the most. And in my opinion, a good friend is going to nicely call you on your crap instead of blindly supporting all their decisions. If these things are not always the case for everyone, that puts them in the realm of limiting beliefs, which means there's some variation there. By unpacking your own emotional stuff, you'll start to be able to see it in others. See, when you're a functional alcoholic, you won't notice how much your friends drink. But once you cut back or quit, you'll start to notice how much everything your friends do revolves around consuming alcohol. And once you go on a diet, you'll notice how much sugar your family eats. Once you start unpacking your childhood and your past traumas, you'll start seeing the pain others feel just under the surface of how they behave. The truth is that a lot of people don't know how to unpack their issues. And under that, a lot of the times they don't even believe they deserve to. This type of work isn't something you can just follow along and master. You have to put in the work of learning to understand all aspects of yourself. You can't deconstruct 30 years of stored emotions and thought patterns in a 10-week course. Pick practices that are working for you and keep doing them. And if they're not working for you, find other ones. Even when you, quote, move on to the next session, don't just do that practice that one time, especially if you didn't feel like it did much. Come back to it. Play with it. Every time you learn more, cycle back through your old stuff. I'm telling you, sometimes it can be so different the second or third time around. Um, somewhat of a sidebar here. If you are a parent and you're feeling triggered into thinking about both your childhood and your children, it's okay. Just like your parents, you've only ever done the best that you could. And this was just a part of both of yours, your parents, and your children's journey. Also, I have noticed that as you heal yourself, it will often quickly start reflecting in your children's mood and behavior. It's like you gain clarity on an aspect of your shadow, and the next thing you know, your child gains the same clarity all on their own. After, of course, you know, struggling a little extra hard first. <laughs> 
some of this I do believe is because of our quantum connection, either through biology or the time and effort that we spend with them. But some of this is also because when you aren't parenting or really any relationship uh, from your wounded self, or even just a less wounded version of yourself, you're better able to hear your child. And it's easier to see how they're just reacting because of what they've learned so far, typically what they've learned by watching you. When you begin to learn a lot of patience and compassion, this boomerangs back uh, and improves communication and connection with everyone around you. But don't worry if it hasn't boomeranged yet. Don't forget they're also working within their path and their rules and and that are up to them if they want to change or not. So it's important to just remember to focus on you and it'll just wait in their energy field for whenever they're ready to work on it as well. But above all else, please do not forget to be patient with yourself as well. As I sit here writing this, I honestly feel so hypocritical because it's not uncommon for me to lose my temper, especially when I have repeated myself at least a few times. My child and I have grown into a relationship now, though, where when I do lose my shit, they can call me out, politely, of course, and whether they call me out or let me have my tantrum, I always apologize later because they deserve it. If you would apologize to your coworker or a friend, then your child needs an apology too. So if you're a parent and you're feeling emotions because your child is throwing a temper tantrum, just do your best to call them out in a judge-free way, in a way that wouldn't upset you if the tables were turned. And honestly, this goes for all relationships. Everyone is just doing the best that they can to feel safe and loved, and even 40-year-olds still throw temper tantrums. And when your child or your partner or whoever you're trying to communicate better with musters up the courage to call you out in whatever way that they attempt this, know that they are doing the very best that they can. And with your kids, this is again largely what you've taught them. I'll go into parenting more later in another episode, but for now I'll leave it at that, kind of mostly. <laughs> A lot of this is about parenting to be honest. It's reparenting yourself, reparenting your inner child, reparenting your children, reparenting realistically your parents if they let you. Similar to how you have physical, mental, and spiritual self, you have ego, shadow self, and inner child. There's three aspects that make you, you. I am most people who do energy will work will for the most part address ego, shadow self, and inner child as three separate aspects of your existence. Uh, but it can be helpful to acknowledge that they are all in fact you. As you work with one, the others will pop up. As you merge with your ego, uh, you also for the most part will naturally merge with your inner child and shadow self as well. As you work on one, the other ones will almost naturally keep up with whatever progress you're making. And I'll get more into inner child and stuff again in a later episode. So sorry I keep saying that. This is like a spider web of to topics. It's uh, a little bit of a challenge to try and organize this. Um, but I just wanted to drop a tiny bit about the inner child in uh, this episode because I wanted you to begin to notice 
how these aspects of self interact with each other. In my opinion, the easiest way to start this is by paying attention to the thoughts that go on in your head. Notice which one is categorizing and leading everything, which one's fear, reaction, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. That is most likely your ego. And the one is seeking an outside person or activity to feel better, searching for validation or comfort. This is likely your inner child. And the things that make you feel shame, guilt, or embarrassment, the things you hope never have to talk about, most likely are actually your shadow self. And this can help you find um, if what you're needing is comfort, acknowledgement, approval, or just permission to let your guard down. See, in the moment that you felt unsafe or unhappy, your ego is the part of you that attempted to handle the situation decided how well it was handled and what needs to happen next time. The shadow self is the part of you that your ego tries to get rid of in order to keep the inner child safe and happy and loved. Whether it's you not acknowledging that it's safe and important to be vulnerable sometimes, or maybe if you never again let anyone else know that sometimes you cry in the car, you lock these aspects up of yourself and hope that nobody, sometimes not even you, notices. And your inner child is the part of you that you feel you need to protect all the time. Your shadow self may be your vulnerability, but your inner child are the parts of you that would be damaged if someone took advantage of your vulnerability, such as self-worth. Our egos create our boundaries and our inner rules, but our inner child is usually a key to finding a proper intention to our boundaries and rules. And we can really only heal the inner child when we stop trying to box up and get rid of parts of who we are. So by acknowledging an aspect of our shadow self, you allow the inner child to be that, which allows the ego to let go of its expectations and just move on. And sometimes you'll find the rule that you're following and start working with ego, and other times you'll feel the shame or embarrassment and start working with your shadow self. The difference between them all can be quite minuscule, to be honest, but sometimes the more detail you can figure out, the more thoroughly and efficiently you can heal something. Although the struggles and achievements you encounter are reflections of self, this does not make any of your struggles your fault. Many people believe that you choose your struggles, but that's up for debate. Uh, so, but the fact is, what children experience shapes who they become, and our society has granted in us an undeniable stream of proof that the world is out of struggle, pain, and hardship. So that is often what we expect from the world. The average person reality is so warped from their ego and limiting beliefs that they can't see past this reality to the truth of what is there, that the world is actually quite beautiful and abundant. We struggle with this due to our collective lack of understanding about the human consciousness. Your consciousness is you, and your theme of consciousness is how you perceive the world and the quality of your existence. See, we experience struggles because we were told we were going to, and then we believed it. So the universe has been giving us opportunities to prove it time and time again. And the only way to change your limiting beliefs is to personally realize that they are wrong. 
And you can do this through life experiences, or you can do it through flipping through your energetic files via energy work. Anything that you deem true about yourself or other people or about your reality, it is all worth a second look and a third look. Because as you process this stuff you've been holding, new layers will pop up everywhere. New opportunities to start a new direction. Oh, I hope you really take the time to ponder why. Why do you feel that way? Why do you react that way? Why do you think that way? Just ask yourself why. And when you come up with an answer, ask why that was your response. It can be rather interesting in the places that this seemingly tiny practice can take you. Okay, I've reached 40 minutes, and I want to thank you so very, very much for listening to my podcast today. It's been so exciting to finally get all of these uh, thoughts out of my uh, Google Docs. <laughs> I hope that you have a really amazing day, and I will get back on here soon to post uh, another episode.